Uh, as Bruce said, my name's Paul. I'm one of the site pastors here at the gate, and it is wonderful to have you here uh, with us today. I'm continuing the series that James started last week uh, called Truth, Jesus in a Post-Truth Culture. And as I begin, I want to give you a question to start thinking about. And by a question, those of you who know me uh, will know that I mean many similar questions phrased slightly differently. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I often have this in like one-on-one meetings or moments. I'm like, oh, let me ask a question. And then like six questions later, I've finished. But <laughs> so what I want you to begin thinking about is who are you? What makes you you? What's the most important thing about you? What is at your core? Well, to make it very 2019, what do you identify as? There's a claim at the start of the Gospel of John that when we believe in Jesus' name, we have the right to become children of God. It says this in verse 12. Yet to all he did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And today... I want us to look at our gospel identity. Last week, James unpacked uh, some of the kind of info about the post-truth culture we live in and used the phrase gospel resilience, that we need to have a gospel resilience in the light of our culture. And today, we want to talk about a gospel identity. And my hope is that each and every one of us would catch even just a glimpse of what our gospel identity is. One of the goals of this series is that our eyes would be open to the messages and the values of our culture so that we can understand the world in which we live. So let me, um, I'm going to recap some of what James said last week. So if you were here last week, you might remember some of it. Uh, And then I want to dive a bit deeper into what our culture says about identity. Let me just caveat it at this stage. This is not a full cultural critique by any uh, means. This is more scratching the surface. It's an introduction. And two people um, I want to recommend to you uh, that have been really influential to us as we've journeyed uh, on learning more about this are Glenn Harrison. He is a consultant psychiatrist and evangelical um, speaker and author. Uh, He was based at the University of Bristol. But He's an amazing, amazing thinker, writes a lot about how psychiatry, psychology, the mind relate to faith and God. And he's got two books that I'd really recommend if you want to dive a bit more into this. One of them is The Big Ego Trip, which looks at the self-esteem ideology that's been prevalent in our society over the last few decades. Uh, And then the other one is A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing, which talks about the rise of individualism. The other person is Mark Sayers. He is uh, an Australian pastor and a brilliant cultural commentator. Uh, He has a book called Disappearing Church that is is really helpful, again, in understanding some of this. And I say that because I'm going to quote them quite a few times today, and I want to give you some resources to go and dive into it a bit more if you want. Um, this will be a bit more heady and, uh, than often our talks are. This will be a, a bit more focused on the culture in which we live than some of our talks normally are. But, but, but bear with us because I think it's really helpful when we understand the world in which we live and then how our faith relates in there. So last week, James uh, unpacked the reality of the post-truth culture in which we live 
Post truth was the Oxford English Dictionary's word of the year uh, in 2016. And if you're on social media, you'll remember fake news, echo chambers, and the world of politics just blowing up when anyone could say anything and you'd have some people just getting behind it, being like, yes, and some people being deeply offended. All of this led to Matthew Norman, he's a columnist for The Independent, lamenting at the end of 2016, the truth has become so devalued that what was once the gold standard of political debate is now a worthless currency. James, uh, I don't want to say in a rare moment of eloquence, <laughs> but he's not here tonight, so I can. Um, summed it up, no, he's, he's wonderful. Uh, he summed it up brilliantly last week with this phrase. He said, a post-truth world is not one in which the truth has ceased to exist. It's one in which it no longer matters. And that's the world in which we live, that you and I go about our day-to-days. Mark Sayers, the Australian pastor I mentioned in the book Disappearing Church, explains that you know, so this shift, that truth is no longer so important to our culture, but he says that there are some things that are deeply important, and that these are a set of widely held beliefs. I'll read them in a moment, and you'll, you'll recognize them from last week. James went through them as well. But he explains that these beliefs are pervasive across all sectors and people groups. He says this, these beliefs are held dear by groups as disparate as human rights advocates, pornography producers, free market economists, leftist anarchists, internet hackers, gay marriage campaigners, hippies, tech entrepreneurs, and small government conservatives. Behind much of the rhetoric, these views hold sway for much of the left and the right. However, most importantly for millions across the West, these beliefs provide the dominant framework for navigating life. So here are those seven, and I'm sure that as I read them, you will recognize, hopefully, some of the culture around us. So the first one of these widely held beliefs, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, and self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. The world will inevitably, number three, improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the internet, will motor this progression towards utopia. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Number five, humans are inherently good. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions are are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. Hopefully, as, as we have rattled, I know we've rattled through them, but hopefully you'll, you'll be able to see, oh, that does make sense for the way that some of my friends think and the way that some of the people in my workplace think. But can you see what's clear across those seven values? We have enthroned the self as the highest authority. In our post-truth culture, truth has become deeply subjective. You have your truth, right? I have my truth. And you're, you should be allowed to define whatever your truth is, and that truth should not impact on my truth. 
You should just be able to exist in a bubble over here, enjoying your truth, and I should be able to exist in a bubble over here, enjoying my truth. As long as one of those truths doesn't go against the seven values that we just said. Some of us might have found ourselves saying things that fit this post-truth narrative. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Whatever floats your boat, just do what makes you happy. Just be yourself. Follow your dreams. Discover who you really are. Follow your passions. Follow your heart. This ideology of the self having ultimate authority has come from a philosophical way of thinking called individualism that started really back in the 60s with the baby boomers, uh, at least here for us in the West. Uh, baby boomers, the sexual revolution, that kind of tied in around the 60s. And now individualism has some positive attributes about it, uh, and some of which reflect the truth of scripture. Right? So it says that we should value each person individually that every single person has rights, that each person should be encouraged to think for themselves. And those are great things. And many of the civic freedoms that we enjoy today have their roots in the philosophical way of thinking of individualism and what that's motivated. And we should not be afraid to celebrate that. And one of the things that I want to say is that as we're unpacking culture, I don't want it to seem like it's us in here saying as the church, being like, culture's so bad, all of it's evil. You know what? It's not. Some of it is really, really good. But some of it isn't. And our hope is that our eyes would be open so that we'd begin to weigh the messages that we're receiving and be able to discern which of the messages of our culture line up with Scripture and which don't. There has been a shift, however, in philosophical thinking uh, from individualism to what's called radical individualism. And this has happened over the last couple of decades but has got especially mainstream in the last few years. Glyn Harrison, uh, who is the evangelical psychiatrist I mentioned at the start, puts it better than I can. In his book, A Better Story, which is the one of the ones I recommended, he explains this shift from individualism to radical individualism like this. Previously, individualism had been about striking the right balance between individual thought and reason on the one hand, and external authority and the wisdom of tradition on the other. Now, it was about freedom from external authority and the wisdom of tradition, all of it. Freedom was about being freed from the moral and ethical obligations imposed by others. He goes on, the authority of the individual and the primacy of thinking for yourself were taken to a whole new level. Freedom was the watchword. Freedom from authority, freedom from nature, freedom to be me, whoever me happens to be or wants to be. The worldview that exist in our culture is that the individual is sovereign and that no one but the individual can define what is true for that person. And we see that no more clearly than in our culture's view of identity. Freedom to be me, whoever me happens to be or wants to be. Freedom to be me, even if the me today is different to the me yesterday. Freedom to be me and, and my friends and family should just accept me for who I am. Let's go back to that question I asked at the start. Who are you? What makes you you? What do you identify as? Ultimately, what is your identity? Now, in psychiatry and psychology, as I've been reading um, really into this over the last year or so, it's clear that there isn't one simple agreed definition uh, of what identity is. 
But I think the most helpful definition I have found comes again from Glenn Harrison, and he says this, it is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, the inner narrative that gives a sense of meaning and coherence to our lives. So what's the story that you have been telling yourself? What gives you meaning? Is it that you have a great career or that you're a top-of-the-class student? Is it that you have a family? Maybe you have a husband or a wife. Maybe you've got kids. Is it that you're not chained to a job or a location and you're free to travel the world and experience things? Is it that you're a plastic-free, almond milk, flat white drinking, single speed, cycling, vegan? (laughs) Which is very apt for our generation, right? Is it possessions? Is it that you have the latest iPhone or Oliver Banus purse? Is it that you have something else that is filling the void within you? Is it, and I know this is sensitive, especially for our generation, but is it your sexuality? Is that the most important thing about you? Is it people's approval? Is it the opposite of that? Is it that you're independent and you don't need people's help? What's your story? What's your narrative? Maybe for you, though, your story isn't a positive one. Maybe for you, your story is rooted in always being the victim. Or your narrative runs through the lens of what people have said or done to you in the past. Or maybe what they're doing or saying to you now. And look, I don't want to minimize pain or damaging situations. You know what? What I love is that the Lord's heart is postured towards the brokenhearted. It says in Psalm 34 verse 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And if you're here in your narrative, your story is a negative one, then we would love to pray for you. We would love to help you go on that journey. And you'll probably need some counseling and some pastoral and prayerful support. And that's okay. There's no shame in that. But you know what? Whatever our narrative is, whether it's you know, what we, our culture might think is positive things, the, the good things about us, or maybe it's the negative things, the goal of following Jesus is not that we recognize the negative things that we define our identity with and then redefine ourselves with good or holy things like how many times in the week we've read our Bible or how many people we've prayed for or that we turn up early and set the chairs out at church. The goal is that we stop trying to define ourselves altogether and let the identity that God has given us permeate our entire beings. This is the crux of the matter. It's taking a step back from the detail of our story and saying, you know what, I'm going to repent of self-definition itself. The answer Glenn Harrison writes is to stop judging, rating, or scoring yourself as a person altogether. Stop trying to label yourself as good or bad worthy or worthless. Instead, embrace and accept your biblical identity, how God in his grace now sees and understands you. You do, however, need to judge or evaluate your individual attributes, such as your ability to play the trumpet or run a small group or a Bible study efficiently. And we certainly need to judge and evaluate individual acts of sin and discern the motives that underlie them. But it's time to bring an end to evaluating or rating yourself as a human being. God has done that for you. Because of his gift of grace, you are loved, blessed, and called into glory. And that is that. And when we get this, it changes everything. It allows us to pursue all that the Lord has with us, wholeheartedly, unashamedly. 
And when we do that, we'll see true transformation, both in our lives and the lives of those around us. Alan Scott, who was the pastor of Causeway Coast Vineyard in Northern Ireland, uh, and now has, which my wife is from just near there, and it is the most beautiful place. It's like that was a win. And then he's moved, and he's now pastor of Anaheim Vineyard in LA, which is also a win. So he's having it okay at the moment. Um, but he, he sums up, I guess, our desire. In, uh, in his book, Scattered Servants, which has recently come out, and again, I would recommend that to you. He says that our hope is that we develop a faith that isn't just strong enough to survive culture, but that is bold enough to transform it. That's what we're after, cultural transformation. I long for our generation to be totally undone by Jesus, to give everything, to obey his word and follow his ways. A generation who would know their gospel identity. And we need to understand that our worldview in the West, the Christian worldview, is now the minority worldview. And we don't need to be scared about that. We just need to be aware of it. Think about it. I remember I was chatting to someone after the service this morning, and I remembered, I think when I was maybe in year 10 or something, I was in music. And I was chatting to one of my friends. He was, he had a very different kind of life to me. He was quite into drugs and alcohol and sex and that kind of stuff. And, and I wasn't. I was trying to follow Jesus and not do those things. And we were chatting. And he just said, you know what, man? I, I don't think I could do it, but I really respect that you do. I think it's probably a better way of life. This was amazing. I was like, whoa, okay. And we, we spoke about it a bit more. But now, think about the shift Denying your sexuality or sexual experiences is now seen as the worst thing that you could do. It's seen as oppressive. It's not seen as good. There's been such a shift, right? This is the culture in which we live. Our worldview is a minority, but that's okay. Because we can transform it. When we know our gospel identity, when we know who we were made to be, The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, puts it like this. It's in Christ that ye, once you have heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation, you found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. Love a bit of Stevie Wonder in the Bible. (laughs) It's so great, isn't it? Um, The next chapter, so that was Ephesians 1 verse 13. Sorry, I'm not sure if I said Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10, he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not for your, from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, say that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Say that we may not boast. Say that we may understand that our core identity, the, the core identity we have is bestowed upon us, by our loving Father. It's not a result of anything we do or don't do. Now, a quick caveat on this. This isn't to say that we shouldn't discover ourselves. It, it isn't to say that we shouldn't discern what we're good at, what we're bad at, what we're called to. We, are, we believe that the Lord created each and every one of us in this room, in this city, in this country, uniquely. And that he has things that he has called each of us to that are different. And we should explore what they are. But we should do so from the lens of understanding that we are a far, loved by a father. 
David Brenner, who is um, a psychologist and a Christian spirituality writer, um, he says this, In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. Is that you? Is being deeply loved by God at the core of your identity, is it the first thing that you think about when you think of who you are? I, you know, I know for me, I don't always find that easy, that often I end up falling back and looking to things that I think give me worth or value for my identity. And it's also, like, it's not saying that when you meet someone at a party and they're like, oh, hey, like, it's like, who are you, what do you do? And you're just like, I'm a child of God, man. I just follow the king. It's like, you can be normal <laughs> and talk about your job. And, you know, these are really important things. We're called, like, we're made to work. Work is important. It's right from Genesis, the beginning of Genesis. So, but it's understanding that our core identity is a child of God and that we can do nothing to get that or lose that. Jesus knew how truly loved he was. And as we are disciples of Jesus, we're following his way. We're trying to become more Christ-like. It's that we should learn to be loved like he is loved. He prays. In John 17, there's this beautiful, beautiful insight. It's Jesus' prayer for us. And he says in John 17, verse 22, the end of 22 to 23, he's praying to the Father and he says that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He, he's praying that we would understand the Father's love for us as, as he understands it. That's crazy. That's what he's praying for us. And he says, and then the world will know that you sent me. That when we walk in our gospel identity, culture is transformed, our city is transformed. Now some of us in the room, this is what we need to address tonight. Because you don't believe that. We're here and we don't believe the scriptures that we've read tonight. We don't believe that we're children of God. And you know what? Believing is not the same thing as feeling. We don't always feel it. Our feelings come into line over, over time with practices and disciplines. But do you believe it tonight? Maybe tonight is your night to declare your belief in Jesus, to receive him and to become a child of God. How cool would that be? And we'll have some time at the end if you want to do that. Maybe tonight you'll become an adopted child of God. On, a, on the day a child is adopted... They are fully part of that family. If I adopted a child, uh, when they are adopted, they would be fully a creaturely. They would never be more or less of a creaturely than they are in that moment. Their identity changes. They are now a creaturely. And that's what it's like for us. In Ephesians 1, the end of verse 4 into verse 5, Paul says this, In love he predestined, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in, according, in accordance with his pleasure and will. From the moment we receive him, as it says in the verse we read at the start, John 1 verse 12, and believe in his name, we are given the right to become children of God. And our identity changes. 
So as you sit here today, if you have put your trust in Jesus, you're a child of God. You're completely forgiven. You're free from sin. You're free from shame. And think what our city would look like. What your family, what your friendships, what your workplace or your university or your school would look like if we truly understood this. Think about what your day-to-day would look like. But as I say that, you know, I know there'll be some of us here tonight who are thinking, but I don't feel very free. I, like, I'm struggling with anxiety or depression. And I just can't break it. I'd love to be able to, as it says in Psalm 23, be like, lie down by in green pastures. But I just can't do that. I can't be alone with my thoughts. Say, Does this, is this tree? Am I truly a child of God? Or maybe you're here and you're like, well, okay, you're saying that, but free from sin, I, I sinned last night. Maybe you're here and you're like, I stayed up late last night masturbating to porn. Or I went out and I got wasted and had a one-night stand with someone. And you know what? There's, there's no shame here. Obviously, we want, we want you guys to pursue lives of holiness. Back to the adoption analogy. The day that a child is adopted... They are fully 100% part of that family. Their identity changes. So if I, adopt, if I adopted a child, they would become fully a Crutchley. But it would take them time to work out what living like a Crutchley entails, which is mainly eating pizza and playing sport. <laughs> I don't get to eat as much pizza as I used to. And it's sad. It's what having a wife who cares deeply about health. Which is good, is good. I was, I, I was saying this this morning, and I, I just had a moment of picturing at the back of Sainsbury's, they have this make-your-own-pizza like section. And for a fiver, you can get this massive, I think it's like a 14-inch pizza, sourdough basis, say, like 2019. It's wonderful. Uh, and it's, oh, it's beautiful. If you've never had that, I would encourage you to do that. And um, I'd happily come and share a pizza with you. <laughs> just don't tell my wife. <laughs> But look, see, see, the day that you put your trust in Jesus, right, your identity changes. You become a child of God. You have a new identity. The core of who you are changes. But it takes time for you to, to learn to live fully in that identity. It takes time for you to walk out the freedom that you have received. It's what Romans 12 verse 2 describes as renewing your mind. Paul writes this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's the reality that we have an identity, but we're still learning to live in it. You know, for some of us, maybe we've become a Christian later in life. Maybe we're in our 20s or our 30s, and we've decided to follow Jesus. Well, we've got maybe 25, 30 years of life of different mindsets to unlearn and to relearn who Christ says we are and how we live in that. And you know what? There's a real active part that we have to play, this renewing of our minds. It does require our participation. It requires us to, to follow the spiritual disciplines and practices. To, again, another eloquent quote from James Rankin. He says, is that we drip feed our soul with the truth of Scripture. That we as, as people would regularly read the truth. That we'd let it fill our souls. What I love though is it's not that it's all on us. 
So there are two things I just want to quickly highlight. The Holy Spirit, in John, so the, the whole of the Gospel of John is amazing and talks so much about truth. And if you read through it, you'll see it. And in, in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. And almost, uh, I think it's every time bar one, he describes the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. Uh, and there's this amazing moment in um, John 14, verse 26. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So yeah, we play an active role, but also the Holy Spirit plays an active role in reminding us of the truth, of bringing to mind the things that Jesus has taught us. Ephesians 1 verse 13 to 14 explains that the Holy Spirit is also a guarantee. It's like a seal of the inheritance that we're going to receive as sons and daughters of God. It says this, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Some of us tonight need to receive the Holy Spirit. Need to encounter his, his presence, his power. The Holy Spirit is real. And if you've been here before, you'll know, sometimes during worship, sometimes at the end when we're praying, we just wait on the Holy Spirit and then, and, and people are, are, are visibly and physically affected by it because the power is real. And maybe you're here tonight and you're like, you know what, I feel like I'm doing this alone and I need the Holy Spirit. So we can pray for that as well. Some of us need to confess our faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. Some of us need to repent of defining ourselves rather than letting God define us as his children. Some of us need to commit to renewing our minds, to learning to live in the identity that we have been given. Two Corinthians five verse seventeen says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Tonight is a night that the old can go and the new can come. 